I'm giving you the three, two, one challenge for the book of James. Um, read through the book of James in totality, um, preferably in one sitting, um, three times over the course of this sermon series. Um, encourage you after you've done that or in the course of doing that to memorize um, two verses or two passages um, from the book of James that particularly speak to where you are. Um, and the one is don't miss more than one sermon, um, even if you have to catch up by, um, by listening to it online. And so that's my three, two, one challenge um, for you as we work our way through um, the book of James to remind you from last week, James um, is Jesus's brother. You might say Jesus's um, half brother, um, presumably the, the son of Mary and of Joseph. And so he grew up in the house with Jesus, knew Jesus, um, went on as um, Jesus's sibling, earthly sibling, um, to confess Jesus as Lord and Christ and Messiah, risen from the dead and ruling on high. And James went on to be a leader in the church at Jerusalem having grown up in a, Jeru a Jewish family, um, he particularly saw his ministry to Jewish Christians, um, Jews who had worshiped God within Judaism um, their whole lives, maybe grew up in synagogue as little kids and came to in time to see Jesus as the Messiah predicted in scripture. And so James is writing this book, it says to the 12 tribes um, dispersed or scattered. So they're outside of Jerusalem. Um, these are Jewish Christians who are no longer within Jerusalem and James is writing from Jerusalem to them. Um, he's writing very practical things of how does the gospel work itself out in um, daily life. And so when um, we're moving on from Galatians, which was Paul's very heady view of what the gospel is and um, what are false gospels that may compete with the true gospel. And now we're moving into James, which hopefully help you see very practically um, how these things work themselves um, out in everyday life. Um, it was probably one of the first books of the Bible written. So I know it's towards the end. If you haven't found it yet, it's um, after Hebrews right there before 1 Peter, nearing um, towards Revelation and the end of the New Testament, but probably, hard to know exactly, but probably one of the first books of the New Testament written. And so that's where we are this week. And we're talking about two things. We're talking about suffering and we're talking about wisdom. Um, and if those two themes aren't interesting to you or something that you've experienced or longed for in your life, um, I don't think you're human. Um, and so suffering and just being a part of this con congregation, um, we've seen more suffering than any congregation I've been a part of um, in the past. Um, I thought about starting my sermon um, and just listing generally some of the things that, um, that we've dealt with as a whole, um, you know, physical suffering, illness, emotional, relational, um, that kind of stuff, but I thought that, that would be a way too depressing way to start a sermon, and so I ditched that. I'm not going to do that, um, but some of you know in your own stories the kind of things that we've dealt with um, in suffering, and um, not just in suffering, but also wondering, what is God up to in my life? Um, what is he doing? What does it look like for me to live out biblical wisdom um, every day? And so that's where we're headed this morning as we look at these two um, different um, groups of verses, the first one from two to five, the second one from um, six to eight. And uh, if I'm going to give a little bit of a, of a preface, um, tell you a story from my life growing up, um, one of the things that, um, that we did and, and tried to stay out of trouble, but not always were successful at that, is me and my friends would hang out at the mall. Um, we'd hang out at Lone Haven Mall at Virginia Beach. Our parents would drop us off with whatever little amounts of money we were able to earn, and we'd go to the candy store and buy way too much candy corn and wander around the, the mall as roving bands of the kids you now see and kind of turn askance at, like, whose mom and dad are letting them roam the mall? Um, and so that was us and, and my friends and what we did. And um, right in the center of Lynn Haven Mall, it's probably not there anymore, and I'm probably dating myself, but there was a, a poster store of um, stereoscopic 3D posters. I don't know if you remember these. 
Um, but you would walk up to them and kind of poster-sized, and there would be a repeated print on it, usually some kind of cool 3D repeated print. It might even be of, a, of an image of something. So it might be an island with um, dolphins on it, or it might just be one common pattern. Um, and if you stood at it long enough and looked at it long enough within the pattern, another pattern would pop out to you almost three-dimensionally, and you'd see a different image almost popping out from the poster. Um, and I could never get it to work. And so I'm, I'm really going on what other people say. And my friends would joke me, and they, they'd tell me to do all kinds of things. Now I think probably just messing with me. But you know, go cross-eyed, and I'm sure you can see it. Or get right close up to it with your nose right against it, um, and then back out. I think that one was the joke. And they would just watch me do that. And I could never get it. Um, but what these images were were of one image. And then if you stared at it long enough, you saw another image come over um, top of it. And so. Where we're going this morning is often suffering is like that. Um, we look at what's going on in our lives and we see the raw, visceral, emotional pain of what it means to go through something hard. And the question is, is there another image in that? If we look at it, especially if we look at it through the word of God, does another image over top start to poke out to us? Can we start to see God's ways um, in suffering? And so that's where we're headed this morning. And so what I need for you in your mind, at least, is to get that first image. And so I want you now to think about um, the biggest bit of suffering you are going through or have been through recently. Um, my little thing that I always do with you is to get to that point and ask that question is to say, if you had genie powers for a day, omnipotent czar of the universe, and you could fix one problem in your life, never to be a problem again, you could just snap your fingers and God would grant one request, one solution to one problem, what would you choose? And whatever that problem is, is what I want you to have in your mind as we work our way through this passage in James. And so I'll read to us now from the word of God. Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is the word of our God. Let's pray this morning. Father, um, this is a sensitive topic, and it is something that all of us have do and will experience suffering and hardship and pain and trials. And so as we come into this, Lord, would you keep us connected to your word? Would you give us patience to think through our pain, to think through the challenges we're facing, and even to admit maybe some of the, the falsehoods that we're believing about our suffering and believing about you? We need you as we come to your word, and are thankful for this letter from James, not only to the 12 tribes scattered, but also to us in Culpeper here in 2015. We pray these things in Christ. Amen. So I have to immediately address maybe some cognitive dissonance that you may be experiencing. You heard James say, count it all joy, brothers, when you face suffering of all kinds. Even in just reading that and having that read to you, you might have a temptation to disconnect from the word of God here, thinking 
that this passage obviously is either not true or not about your life or talking about someone else. Because for you to hear James say, count it all joy when you suffer, something in you says that's not possible, at least not in my circumstances. And I hope if I can lay some things aside that you'll at least hang with me till the end of the sermon and not decide at this point to disconnect and say that's for somebody else. Um, there's obviously some problem with the text there. I'm sure there's a textual issue and it doesn't really say that in the Greek. It does really say that in the Greek. And I hope you see by the end um, that, this is, there's, that there's gold here for you and there actually is joy here from you in the midst of your suffering. And so the two things I need to set aside is James is not here teaching the power of positive thinking, which is becoming more and more popular in our day. So people will say to you in the midst of your suffering, it's okay. It's not that bad. Look on the bright side. I'm sure something good's coming around the corner. You're not suffering as bad as someone else. And what all those people are saying is there is some kind of mental gymnastics that you can do to reduce the pain that you're currently going through, and it does not work. You talk to a counselor, really bad stuff happens to you when you do that. You end up developing a lot of neuroses and crazy stuff when you are experiencing pain and you try to teach yourself with positive thinking that you're really not and that everything's fine. And some of you know that growing up in the different families that you've been in. So Hallie and I and the boys were on vacation this past week. We, we drove to Savannah and um, thought that was a great idea and did have a good time with our family, but we'd forgotten how painful that car ride was. You go three across of Fredericksburg and you turn onto 95 and the GPS says that the next turn is in 500 miles. Um, that's discouraging um, to go. And so um, we were tempted in the midst of that to say, oh, it's not that bad. It's not as bad as driving to the West Coast or whatever. But we just had to say with soreness in my back right now, that was hard. No amount of positive thinking made that anything else than what it was, a family car ride for nine and a half hours. And so positive thinking doesn't help at all. And if I were to do that in the car yesterday, you know, I would have things thrown at me from the back seat. No, it really is that bad. Like dad's off his rocker saying that this is a fun thing that we're doing. This is not fun. Um, so that, that's the first thing that we have to set aside. James is not giving you the power of positive thinking. And I want you to have your antenna up when people try to tell you in the midst of your suffering that it's really not that bad. It is. We do live in a painful broken world. The second thing that we need to lay aside is that James is not offering for you some kind of future possible mystical experience that if you believe enough, then it won't really hurt. And this is what other people articulate, especially within the health and wealth gospel, that if you have enough faith, if you believe hard enough, if you somehow memorize enough scripture or you learn these secret mantras that you can reach a higher state of mystical experience where the pains and sufferings of this life do not hurt as much. It's not true. It doesn't exist. James is not teaching that. And so when you come to a passage like this, it's important for us to lay aside both of those things so at least you'll hang with me. I'm not trying to do positive thinking. You may have tried that and found that it didn't work. The whole mystical thinking is the easiest way to have a, a high turnover in church because people are around and think they can attain that state. And when they don't, they think they don't have much faith and need to leave. And the next bunch of people come along and believe and don't believe and leave. 
And that's not what James is saying here in this passage. What James is talking about is he's talking about the stories that we tell that help us make sense of our experiences. And all of us do it. All of us are natural storytelling people. One of the authors I read last week said, we, to use a double negative, we cannot not tell a story. So when experience or something unexpected or pain or illness come into your life, you don't just sit back and hold it as some object that you're pondering from afar and considering. You try to work it into your story. Why did this happen? What's going to happen in the future? What do I need to do right now? What does this say about me as a person? What does it say about my friends? What does it say about the world that I'm living? You naturally try to incorporate these moments of punctuated pain into a story that you're constantly telling yourself that's going on in your head. And we all do it. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily true or false. And so maybe you remember when you were a child and you were growing up, you remember saying things to your parents like, I hate you, you don't know what you're talking about. Or you may say, say things to your parents like, well, when I'm a parent, I'm not going to make my kids eat vegetables. You start telling the story as a kid, the story's wrong. This is injustice on the part of my parents. They are not loving me or taking care of me, and you tell that story to yourself, and then later realize when you're a parent, you know what, my parents were actually loving me pretty well. But that wasn't the story I was telling myself then. Or even now, as we go through the political realm, James Davidson Hunter in Charlottesville wrote a book about um, politics, and what he said was that minority groups tend to create narratives of offense about one another. They all do it. And so the Republicans have a narrative of offense about the Democrats, how they're a bunch of horrible people, and the Democrats have a narrative of offense about the Republicans, how they're a bunch of horrible people. And right now, within the primaries, they're actually doing it within their own party. And so this candidate within the same party is saying, well, that person's a horrible person, and I can tell you the story of how they're a horrible person. And that person in response says, well, you don't know how much that they're a horrible person because they're a really horrible person too. We constantly tell stories to make sense of these tidbits of information and experiences that happen in our lives. And I'll let you decide when you look at your life, your experiences and the knowledge that you actually know, how much in between space is you telling stories to try and make sense? We tend to think experience butted up to experience, butted up to information, and it's all true. I wonder when we look back at our lives, we don't realize I'm just trying to make the best sense of my life I can. And a lot of the time, I really don't know what's going on in my life. And that's one of the benefits of having the Word of God. And that's what James is trying to do for you here. He's trying to say, suffering Christian, let me tell you the story. Look hard enough at the poster, and you'll see something else in it. I'm not making it up. It's not power of positive experience. It's actually in there. Let me show you what God is doing in the midst of your suffering. And he gives this chain that he gives. And I don't know if you noticed that in those verses, but this is his chain, um, James's chain. You move from suffering, and he says that those suffering are trials. Isn't random, isn't just happen, isn't by chance, but these are trials. He goes on to say that those trials are tests. And those tests are not tests that you really pass or fail. It's more like testing fine metal 
I want to see how fine this is, and so I'm going to put it under fire, and I'm going to burn off the dross. I'm, I'm going to test the quality of God's work in me. And so God puts us within the, the furnace of testing and burns off the dross, and you get to see, oh, this is what God's up to in my life. And what he says is, as you test, what you see is that God's creating steadfastness in you. Some other translations say endurance. That God is giving and providing to you the ability to bear up within the midst of suffering and trials. But you're only seeing it as you go through them. It's true that God doesn't give you everything you need before you go through it. You just trust him as you go through it and he provides along the way. We tend to want it to be the other way. Okay, God, you can tell me when the trial's coming and then you can show me the, the bank accounts and all the equipment you've given me to face it and then I'll go into it. But you need to confirm first that I have everything that I need to step into that. And God says, no, step into it and trust me. Step into this, because you see what happens next. He says, steadfastness, when it's done, makes you complete and perfect, lacking in nothing. We're going to take one more step of what the Bible talks about that state, and that is Christ-likeness. So what we learned in Paul is what God is up to in our uniting us to Jesus is he's making all of us like Christ. He's restoring us. If in the beginning Adam and Eve were created, generated, made alive, when sin entered the world, they were degenerated. They were subsequent to death. And then what God has been about since then is regenerating, making us more alive. And so the gospel process of sanctification is actually making you more human. It's making you more of the person that you are. You're not becoming less of who you are, you're becoming more of who you are. Where you were in your sin without Christ was subhuman, less you. And God's process of using suffering is to form you into the image of Jesus. And we want there to quibble. We want to say, God, if you are God, certainly you could come up with a better way than suffering to make me more like Jesus. You are God, there are other, are other options. You are sovereign, I can't come up with anything, but I'm sure that you can. I'm sure if you give me a bunch of prosperity, health and money, that I will be perfectly formed in the image of Jesus. Or at least, could we at least try that for a few months? <laughs> I know you don't think that's the way, God, but if you give me a chance, I think I could be the exception. But God loves us too much to do that. The way that he has made for humans to be made more like Christ is through suffering. And you know it's true. I tell you this all the time. I've never met the person who comes up to me and says, I grew wonderfully and I've learned so much about the Lord through my times of prosperity. Never met that person. If that's you, come up and talk to me. What I hear is it's been really hard and I found God to be ever more faithful than I ever believed him to be. Or it's been really hard and I have found myself to be far more less reliable and more sinful than I could ever imagine, but I have seen him to be far more gracious than I could ever imagine. And those are not pleasant experiences. And those are really hard experiences, but at the same time, to see God and to see his ways, there is tremendous joy. So now we circle back around to James. James is not saying somehow get the epidural of some spiritual experience where you don't feel the pain of life. He's saying you will feel the full weight of suffering in this life, 
There will be punctuated, abbreviated, and longer times, and it may be that the thing that you wished in the beginning would be gone will not be alleviated in this life, but still there's left open for you the ability in the midst of confessing that it is that hard and awful and that you wished it were gone, nevertheless to count it joy because you see the image behind the image and you know what God is up to in your life is making you more like Christ and you have seen it to be true in little glimpses where he's pulled back the screen, where he's opened the door a little bit. You've been able to peek in on what he's up to in your life and you've been able to see it's true. I've grown in seeing how much more wonderful he is than I thought he was before I started suffering. It's incredibly encouraging for Christians to see that picture and it's all made possible through Christ because there are times we think he's cast us off. There are times that we think he's disciplining us. There are times we think he's punishing us, not disciplining, punishing us for our sins, condemning us that somehow we are halfway citizens, that we are orphans, and we have but to look at the cross of Jesus because that's the great calibration for our story. We don't really calibrate things anymore. We kind of reboot them. I mean, some of you older folks still calibrate things, calibrate equipment and technology and those things. Well, now we reboot things. We, we hard reset them. That's what the cross does for us. We go there and say, God's suffering and his purposes can be one and the same. He can both have maximum love for someone and allow them to go through intense suffering because it happened in Christ. And we can see what Christ did. And when Jesus said it is finished, we can believe him that it's finished. And so there's no more condemnation for us who's in Christ Jesus. So in the midst of our suffering, though we may not understand, we may not see the image, and we may be trying to go cross-eyed and put our nose up against the poster, we can still see the cross of Christ and know that God has been faithful to us and that his story of triumph through suffering and pain is true. And that we want to tell ourselves random stories about who he is, stories of him being a God who's afar off or a mean and abusive father shaking his fist way off somewhere else. We tell our stories about his grace and his generosity revealed to us in Christ. And that's where we go next. And so we hop into verse 6. And what it says in verse 6, which or verse 5, This is probably one of the more memorized verses in the book of James. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to um, him. We we like that. Um, And again, I kind of have to clear out two mistakes that we make here in this passage. And the first one is to see verse 5 speaking solely about decision-making processes. And so you may have been in Christian circles where somebody said, I don't know what to do. And somebody quotes James 1.5 and says, well, if you don't know, ask God and he'll give you an answer. Um, And that is absolutely true, but it's not the whole of the context here. Do you notice what James is doing in verse five when we connect it to verse four? James is saying there's this whole process of sanctification that involves suffering, that's building to the day you're complete, perfect, lacking in nothing. And then he goes into verse five and he says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, and if we're thinking Jewishly, like James is Jewish, like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, we realize the Jewish idea for completeness and maturity as a person of God is a life of wisdom. He isn't just saying, do you have a life problem? Do you have a decision coming up? Is there a vocational move that you're wondering about? He's saying, do you look at your life and see a lack of maturity? 
Do you see that chain of trial and suffering and progress towards Christ's likeness? And it's difficult for you to figure out where you are in it. You know you're not perfect in Christ yet, and you think you've made some progress, but you don't know where you are, and you see lack in your life, in your experience, in your maturity in Christ. James calls that a lack of wisdom. And so I wonder when you look at your growth and maturity in Jesus is if you see that as one whole process of growing in wisdom. And remember, wisdom is third step. First step is information. I've learned information. How do I fit information together? Second step, that's knowledge. I've now figured out how to fit all of the information together. Third step is wisdom. How do I use that knowledge in life? And as a Christian, how do I use that knowledge for the glory of God and the places that he's put me? And so as a Jew in James, he isn't just saying... We're having a problem with answering a question or a life challenge or a decision to be made. He's saying, do you look at your life and do you see a lack of maturity, a lack of wisdom? Do you see what it says to do? It says, ask God. That isn't our first response, is it? In fact, a lot of times we would rather do anything but ask God. We'd like to read a book. We would like to go through the motions of prayer again. We'd like to attend worship. We'd like to join a service team, which I hope you do. But I hope you don't do it because you think somehow God is going to start answering your prayers. If you look at your life and you say, I am not the Christian I hoped that I would be at this point. If you look at your life and see a lack of maturity. If you look at your life and see a lack of um, big W wisdom, go and ask God. Say, "I, I need your help. I want to become more of a wise person in the way that I live my life. And so if that's the first mistake we make, it's not just decision-making, it's wisdom as a whole and spiritual maturity. The second mistake that we make when we come to this passage is we look at the words ask and it will be given and we skip the middle. We make God into a cosmic vending machine. And so our faith, when he goes on to say the person doesn't doubt, our faith is not in God and who he is. Our faith is in that we have asked and that the Bible has laid out this spiritual math equation that says if I ask, well, then I better get it back because that's the way that God works. If I put my request into the machine, then out pops the bottom the answer that I've, um, I've asked for, that there is an equation, a mechanistic process that I can participate in under the guise of spirituality, and if I ask, if I utter the question into the air, then obviously it'll be returned to me. And I wonder how many of us harbor that kind of view with God, that he's sitting far back like some kind of machine that if we press the right buttons on, we'll get our responses. It's only going to be more that way as we deal with these things in our pockets and our iPads and in our cars and our computers at home, that we look at a problem and we press buttons and the problem is solved. That's not the way the Lord works. And that's not the way that James has laid it out here. Do you see what he says about God? Ask God, who is generous? It's not that you've said the right magic spell to get the request for your um, growing maturity. It's that you've come to a God who loves to give. He's not holding back, waiting and saying you need to earn it, you need to do the right process or read the right books or do the right things. He says, come and ask me because I'm generous. When you go and you ask someone who is generous, you're not coming to them with the things you've done, but you're hoping out of their character of generosity that you'll get. It's not a hope in what you've done, but a hope in who that person is. And so James is pushing you towards the Lord. 
Remember from last week what James's nickname was? His name was Camel Knees. Um, not a very um, nice nickname, except for the fact that it was given to him because he prayed so much that it actually changed, apparently, the physical structure of his knees. Do you think James got this? You see, some of you are like, I just, my prayers are so short. I, don't, I want to pray longer, which isn't necessarily a good goal, but you just never feel like you get there in prayer. Your prayers bounce off the ceiling. I, I wonder for you if it isn't that you're trying to pray to a cosmic slot machine to say the right things and then expect the answers rather than going to God and saying, I've heard that you are generous. And I'm going to stake my claim on who you are as a generous God. The second thing that it says is that he will not reproach you. And I think it's, it's some older words, but I would say he won't fuss at you. Um, and sometimes we think that. You know, we, we, maybe you were growing up and this is the way that your parents were, or maybe this is the way your boss is, or maybe you have people in your life that um, if you ask something from them um, that is frustrating or not the right time or whatever else, they, they fuss at you. Or maybe it's not the right request, or you should go somewhere else, and they, they, they fuss at you. And you wonder if God's like that. Kind of like he's busy trying to figure out this whole Middle East thing, and I have a problem with bronchitis. And he's going to say, are you kidding me? Like, Middle East I'm working on, and you're coming with bronchitis? Go to the doctor, get an antibiotic, don't bother me with that. That would be reproaching. But here James is saying, that, that's not who God is. Come and ask. Ask all kinds of stuff. The best route for your prayers is whatever your need is. Part of the reason that God's given you your need anyway. If you think in our little illustration in the beginning that you said, hey God, I think I'm going to grow quite well if you give me prosperity, money, and health. If you think your prayer life is going to pick up during those things, you are sorely mistaken. And so if you come in your need and you say, I've heard he's generous and I don't have to fear his reproach. Now what does that look like for freeing you to come into the presence of a heavenly father and saying, I've looked at my life, I am lacking in wisdom. This whole suffering thing that you have me in, I'm not quite sure the direction it's gonna go. I see some stuff that you're working on in my life. I see some other areas that could really end me if they're allowed to grow, those sins, and I really need some help. And I'm banking on the fact that you are generous I'm banking on the fact that you will not reproach me and say I'm busy with other things or that's a silly request. And so I'm coming to a God of grace and love and mercy and saying, please help me. It's a beautiful request and a beautiful invitation. And it almost wouldn't be believable unless it occurred here in the Bible. Remember the story of Job crazy thing about the story of Job is that Job never found out why he was suffering. You know, we all know because we read the book. We read, we read the book and you know, we read it and see what happened with Job's life in the beginning and what happens in the story is that God says, I'm going to test this guy because Satan came and said, this Job guy, he's got far too much going on in his life um, that's really good and if you bring hard stuff, he's going to give you up. And so God says, really? Let me show you that he won't. So God brings suffering into the life of Job, like 40 chapters of suffering. I mean, the laboriousness of the book of Job, it wouldn't have as much impact if it wasn't so long to read through. You just get tired about 20 or 30 chapters into Job, and you're supposed to because it's just the laboriousness of the suffering. And in the end, 
God reveals to Job who he is. He doesn't reveal to Job the purpose. He says, let me show you who I am and who you are. I am your God who loves you. This is my character. This is who you are to me, and I love you. And he restores him back to prosperity. And we almost still after that would say, well, that was a long time ago. And maybe that, who knows where that should fit within the Bible, that whole book of Job thing. Praise God that he put the Garden of Gethsemane into the gospel story. Because there you have Jesus in the garden the night before his crucifixion, coming to God and pleading to him, is there not another way? Will you please take this cup from me? By this point in his humanity, he knew what was going to happen. He knew how this was going to go for him. He knew not just the physical suffering, but that he would bear the weight of eternal punishment. It's hard even within those words to describe the kind of horror that is in those two words, eternal punishment. And he went to God, just like James said, and he said, I don't get it. Is there not another way? And in that moment, there was no answer. He said, but your will be done. And on the cross, he cried out to the Lord God for help. And there was no answer. And God in that moment judged Jesus as a sinner in our place and allowed him to suffer. And part of the reason that he did that was so that when we ask, we know that God is answering. God was silent to the Christ because the Christ bore our sins and punishments and bore the punishment of the silence of God in the face of a a question of, help me, please. And because Jesus has done that, we have no right of telling a story about a silent God and our suffering. You have no right. Can I tell you that? That's hard for me to say when we're in the hospital room together, when I'm a pastor, and I come in, and those are just kind of hard moments to tell you. So before we get there and you're suffering, um, (laughs) hope not for all of you, but before we reach those moments, you have no right to say that God is silent in your suffering. Because he was silent in Christ's suffering once and for all, and Jesus said it was finished. Jesus has has made a way for you for this passage to be true to know that this promise will be true for you, that God's purposes will be completed, and that in that day, you will stand before him, before his throne, either when the Lord takes you or Jesus comes back to get you, and you will be made perfect in Christ, and God will wipe away every tear. He's not going to do it today. He might do it this afternoon. He's not going to do it before the return of Jesus, which could be this afternoon. But in the midst of this suffering, there will come a day where suffering will be ended, and you will be made perfect, and there won't be any more because God's purposes will be finished in you and you will shine like Christ and he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant, son, daughter, enter into your rest, the place that I've prepared for you. And you will see and agree with James that what he writes here is true. It's not positive thinking. It's not a mystical experience that there was a story all the time going on in the midst of your suffering. And James inviting you to believe that And so in closing, I wonder where you need to repent. Sometimes we don't need to repent what we've done necessarily, is we need to repent for what we've made God out to be. There are times that you need to say, Heavenly Father, I have made you out to be a mean and distant God. 
I have made you out to be a God who has judgment and wrath for me and in my suffering is hurting me for my sins. I have made you to be out a God who is so preoccupied that he doesn't have time for one of his own children. I have wronged you, Father, and your name because that is not who you are. I am so sorry for making you out to being less loving than you are, less loving than you've revealed yourself to be in the Holy Spirit, and I repent. And I wonder for you, suffering Christians, what it looks like to step into this story and to start telling a different story. God is with me. He will not leave me. He has confirmed his faithfulness to me in Christ at the cross. And I want to suffer when I suffer at the foot of the cross and in the empty tomb and before the full throne of Jesus. That's where I want to suffer. I want to suffer where that story is so visible to me. It is as if that second picture is bursting out of my suffering. And it's the only one that I can see that God loves me in the midst of my pain and my suffering that is still so real. And yet God loves me and is with me. One of the biggest reasons that God has put you Christian and specifically member of Christ's covenant into this church is so that we will suffer together because you will need people to tell you that story over and over and over again. I had a friend early on in ministry and um, he really struggled with watching things he shouldn't watch when he was in hotel rooms traveling. Um, and one of the things that, um, that we would do for accountability is he would call me up and he would say, Joe, tell me what's true because right now I'm tempted to believe something else. Tell me what's true. Tell me about my Lord. Tell me about my Savior. Tell me about my wife and my kids. Tell me about the, the horror of sin. Tell me the true story, because right now I'm tempted to believe a false story. So we get to do for one another. Brother, sister, this is the story we're a part of. This is the story that God is telling. And one day we all will shine and God will get so much glory for the story he's telling through us and none of us see it all. But on that day, we'll rejoice and we'll give praise as the psalm says for all the wonderful works he has done for us. Let me pray for us. Father, would you be with us as we suffer? In the midst of our suffering, would you confirm for us that you are nevertheless the one who has revealed himself in Christ, who is generous, not reproachful, loving, and merciful, the one who doesn't have any more condemnation for us, the one who has made us righteous in Christ. We would rejoice and be joyful for who you are. Even now, Lord, as we sing and come to the Lord's table, we pray that you would take those truths and so impress them on us that it would be as if you were maybe out in the parking lot and that you were yelling to us and we could somehow hear through the closed doors through the center block walls, I love you. I am with you. We love you, Lord. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.